You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Are you good to go? Yes. All right. Fabulous. Well, hell, gang, let's do it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am your host, Louis Kornfeld. Today, I am speaking with the great Elizabeth Slack. <laughs> thank you for being here. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth, uh, uh, on all of your professional material, but hereafter, I will call you Beth. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so we're with this season of the podcast, we're doing a slightly different format than usual. Okay. I'll walk you through at the top what the format's going to be so you're prepped for it. We're going to do a chunk of open general conversation, and then we're going to do a small 10-minute chunk of monologue hotspot, which okay. will uh, um, be kind of a scattershot getting to know each other and pick each other's brain on stuff. Great. And then uh, at the end of the podcast, I'm going to have you improvise a scene for the listening public, okay. our fans, uh, <laughs> called A Very Serious Scene Improvised Opposite a Jar of Pickles. So that's going to be the structure of the podcast today. Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll explain that as we get closer to it, but Great. the title and the explanation are extremely similar. I look forward to it. Me too. So we were having an interesting conversation, or we were starting to right before the podcast, talking about a kind of a difference between um, the direct control that a visual artist has over... Mm-hmm. over have the 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 span from having an inspired idea to being able to express that idea on paper and see the results and know how right. close you came versus the experience of of more of a performance artist yes which is very different um uh i would love to continue that conversation yes so i guess my question is okay. um well i guess starting with a little bit of your background yes so you were studying opera Yes, uh, when I was a youngster many, many moons ago, uh, I had got a degree in vocal performance from the Eastman School of Music with the plan to become an opera singer. Mm. And I got to kind of the end of that journey, and I had applied to graduate schools, and I got in a couple places, but I didn't get any money. And that just kind of felt like a bit of a cosmic sign of sorts that Mm. maybe that wasn't the direction I should be going in. And so, uh, yeah, I ended up um, moving to New York actually on September 8th, 2001, to try to make it as a musical theater performer switching directions. And of course, we've, well, we're taping this on very close to the September 11th. The 15-year mark. Correct. So, you know, I was here for three days with stars in my eyes and grand plans, and then everything changed on September 11th, and I ended up um, ultimately moving to Ohio and living there for two years before coming back to New York again. How long um, did you stay in New York after the 11th? I went home after Thanksgiving. Okay. So I was here for about three months. Uh, I was trying to temp, mm-hmm. which I was able to do a little bit, but they were obviously prior- like prioritizing jobs for people who were directly affected by the attacks. Right. And I was not uh, directly affected, fortunately. So, uh, yeah, I stuck it out. I saw a ton of great theater, spent every cent that I had saved for years, um, to move here and um, just lived as much as I could and then went to Ohio to kind of figure out what the, the next, what the next step would be again. That must have been a hell of a return two years later. I mean, that's a pretty tempestuous two months in New York City to, yeah. to follow your dreams. Holy yeah. shit. And when I came back, I went to uh, a theater school called AMDA, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. So mm-hmm. I came back under the umbrella of school. It was actually just a certificate program. Uh, and I was able to study musical theater, which is kind of where I was redirectioning myself, which was great. I had a great time. It was great to come back under that umbrella. It was a lot easier, a lot safer. You know, I had a dorm to live in. Mm-hmm. I had classes. I had direction. Uh, and I knew what I was working towards. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do that uh, and had a great couple of years. And then stopped doing anything artistic for about 10 years, basically. And then got back into it with improv. Let's get, um, I want to get back to that in just a second. We'll back up a little bit. <laughs> the original question. Yeah. Well, I know we're, 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 we're taking a, a long route back to the original sure. question. But um, I should uh, have prefaced by giving a little bit of your resume. So, uh, Beth, you appear here at the Magnet and premiere the, the improvised musical mm-hmm. on Friday. Friday nights at 10. You're also a regular member of the cast on Saturdays. Yes, at 10.30. You're also a member of the uh, UCB Harold House team, uh, uh, Foxhole. Fox Hole. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you are also one half of the indie musical two-part group, Hansberry and Slack. Yes. So you have a lot of uh, uh, experience accrued in both of the worlds of improv, but largely in musical improv. Mm -hmm. I want to back up for a second to your early interest in opera. Yes. Um, So where did that come from? How long long was that something that you wanted to do, and what was kind of stoking that for you? When I was uh, a little kid, my dad's a pastor of a church, and Mm -hmm. so I grew up in this lovely little country church in a town called Lithopolis, Ohio, and they kind of would work with the kids for a choir, and it was one of those things that was like, oh, this little girl, little Beth, has a little bit of a voice. And so I started singing, so singing was a part of my life from the time I was like four years old. And I loved it, I loved performing, I loved doing stuff, and as I continued to do it, um, I just fell in love with it more and more. When I was a freshman in high school, someone said, you know, you're really talented. Have you ever taken proper voice lessons? And I said, no, I've never, I've never done that. And they recommended someone to me. And so I started voice lessons. And that teacher was amazing. She was great. Uh, she really pushed me to, uh, to learn and to love and to enjoy. And just she was like the best sort of teacher. She just taught me how to love what I was learning. Mm-hmm. And she encouraged me to go to the Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a, actually a private school up in Interlochen, Michigan. And I went there for a summer, and while I was there, I just, the people that I met there were so focused and talented, and they knew what they were doing. And while I was there, I secretly applied to go to the boarding school for a year, and I got in. And I basically called my parents and was like, hey, I, got, I applied, I've gotten in, can you send all this financial information to the school? so we can figure out if I can get scholarship. And my parents were like, what's going on? But like seeing the people there who knew who they were and what they wanted to do was just so inspiring. And it really kind of gave me permission to, to cultivate this little flame that I had in me that was like, I love to sing. I want to do it. How do I do it? Where do I go with this? Mm-hmm. And so being exposed really ignited that flame. And so I went to boarding school for a year studying voice and just loved it, hated living away from home, mm-hmm. was really hard, and I went back to my regular high school for the last two years, where I continued with voice lessons and doing community theater, and when it came time to apply to colleges, my voice teacher, who I went back to, said, you know, here are four schools who I think uh, that I think that you should apply to, and so I just kind of threw caution to the wind and said, I'm going to do it, and went to the Eastman School of Music and mm-hmm. studied there for four years and just loved every minute of it. It was amazing. What was the shift from opera specific to musical theater? So I've always loved musical theater. That's what I did all through high school. I mean, high school students don't really do operas. It's just not a thing. Um, And I always loved doing that. And I think the studying opera, I kind of got to the, I don't know how much you know about opera. Very little. Um, there are basically different voice types, and there's coloratura sopranos, and then there's lyric sopranos, and there are dramatic sopranos. And I very much wanted to be a dramatic soprano, and my voice teacher would kind of always talk to me about this and be like, I'm not sure if that's the type of voice you're going to have, and that's the kind of rep and the roles that I wanted to do. And it's kind of through these four years, it was really, I don't want to say disheartening, because I loved school, and I had a good time, and I I loved it so much, but I kind of got to the end of the four years. Foreign languages weren't coming to me really naturally. I had to work really hard and still had a hard time with them. Mm -hmm. Like I just, that was an ear that I didn't have. It didn't naturally come to me and it was going to be an ongoing struggle for the rest of my career. Like if I was going to be an opera singer, I would be struggling with every role that I did in a foreign language. And that was just overwhelming Mm -hmm. kind of to think about. Um, I don't know. It'd be like a soccer player who, always had to like didn't kick as well from their left foot or something and it would just always be kind of a a handicap for them as they pursued that and I and I got to the end of the four years and like I applied to these master's programs and I got in and I got no money and my parents had been incredibly generous and said we'll pay for all of your undergraduate schooling like you can walk out of that without having to carry that debt but you will need to pay for your graduate schooling and I kind of got to this point and it was just like the money's not there. I love musical theater. I've had this incredible training. I'm just going to go to New York and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of how it happened. And I was one of the few people in my kind of my vocal studio at, at this 
program who would sing musical theater pieces, I'd actually bring it in and work with my teacher on it because I was still wanting to learn that rep and still included it in what I wanted to be working on. Is there like a, what's the relationship between the musical theater world and the opera world? Is it, does the opera world kind of look down on the musical theater world or? No, I think they're just two completely different universes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a couple of people who kind of cross back and forth, but it's, it's very rare. It's very rare just because the kind of two kinds of singing are so different from one another that they're not, the rep doesn't, I would say it's more likely an opera singer would step in and do like a classical musical theater piece. Like they would do a Rodgers and Hammerstein show or something like that. Then you would have a musical theater person step into an opera. Mm -hmm. Like it's just the style and the techniques are so different. Um, I think that there is a little bit of snobbiness around opera, um, which is different because I think that in musical theater, like in the perfect world, someone has an incredible vocal technique. But I feel like in musical theater, people will sacrifice technique to build to an emotional moment, and that never happens in opera. Mm -hmm. You would never, well, you know, there's probably, there's always exceptions, but you would never kind of sacrifice your technique in order to build to an emotional moment, which I feel like in musical theater they kind of have permission to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, the opera world is really changing. I mean, if you looked at the world 20 years ago, people just stood there and, and sang. You didn't think about the great actors on the opera stage. You thought about the great singers. And now that there are performers who are extraordinary actors. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming much more like, no longer can you just have a gorgeous voice. You have to be able to act and you have to be able to be physical and all these things, which kind of 15 years ago weren't necessarily true. Are, who, are, who are actors that, that I should be aware of right now? Well, my favorite opera singer has been and will probably always be Renee Fleming. Mm -hmm. And she's someone who's kind of a universally ex accepted kind of person because she grew up as a jazz, she was a jazz singer when she was younger and she kind of has this um, different, very unique voice. And she's also been a great actress. And so she's kind of been someone who I think has kind of changed the direction of opera. Um, and then I'm ashamed to say that I don't really know as many opera singers as I used to. Yeah. Because I, uh, I did just buy myself a ticket to see Tristan and Isolde, which I'm so excited about, um, at the Met. Uh, which I encourage everyone to do. Everyone should see an opera at the Metropolitan Opera House. Once in their life, they have $25 tickets in the rear family circle. You should go. That theater is unbelievable. The operas are stunning. And it's like a life event that you should do. At least once. I, I went to a few operas um, when I was in college. Yeah. We had a, a really outstanding opera program in my college. Where did you go? SUNY Purchase. Oh, okay. Um, so part of their music conservatory was were people who were focused uh, on opera. And I saw um, The Magic Flute like three or four mm -hmm. times while I was there, which was a really <laughs> excellent production. Yeah. Um, I, seeing uh, in Europe, I saw a couple of uh, uh, Verdi operas. Mm-hmm. Which were absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. The experience was was incredibly. It was an overwhelming experience, but I think as an outsider approaching it, I found it slightly inaccessible. There mm -hmm. was, and and maybe it has to do with the snobbery of it. But yeah. there's a, a language that I wasn't aware of that I didn't have access to that kind of made it feel a little bit mm -hmm. at a distance. So if you were recommending, A, an opera for someone, not the magic flute because that's the joke cliche opera, <laughs> but if you were recommending an opera for someone who who uh, um, was developing an interest, and B, uh, um, if you were recommending a few things that somebody could know that could help to make it more accessible to them, sure. or, or, or perhaps a state of mind to approach it in that uh, would let you see it through fresh eyes. Well, I think that... Um the magic flute <laughs> uh, withstanding even like a lot of the Mozart operas are very approachable. Mm -hmm. They're, they're beautiful. They're simple. Many times they're done in English. Mm -hmm. So that's an, that's one way to kind of bridge that gap a little bit is to see an opera in English. If you know, so that you can understand what they're saying. That's something that can help bring you closer. I think, um, I love Puccini operas. I mean, they're beautiful and lush. Um, and the music is just, Magical. So whenever I'm trying to think of good ones, and now that I'm on the spot, of course I can think of zero things, of as you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and and I think that there is, there can be a real disconnect because I, I mean, I, a couple of years ago I went and saw like this Russian opera at the Met that was like four hours long, and by hour three I was just like, oh, 
I don't care about anything that's happening right now yeah. on the stage, even with having the subtitles or the super, super titles, titles yeah. you know, like I wasn't invested because the music was complicated and it wasn't necessarily lyrical and beautiful and it can create that disconnect. So I feel like Puccini is a great composer for beautiful, lush music that is very accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, mm. The opposite of that is America's contribution to the world with musical theater, which could not be more accessible and, yeah. and could not, I, I think like the thrill of musical theater is how it so directly moves you. And mm-hmm. so directly, at least for me, directly speaks to like the 12 year old. That's a little bit ashamed of all these feelings that are going on. <laughs> like it, it's, it's kind of so like high spirited and, and mm-hmm. hits you so directly. Uh, um, uh, and I had a question that I was leading to, but I'm blanking on that question. So okay. let's move on to a different question uh, as I remember this one. <laughs> so a 10-year gap then between yeah. all of this all of this training and all this passion to then picking it up again. What happened in that 10-year gap and then what got you into improv to kick you back into performance? Sure. Well, I, was, I did some community theater here in New York, but community theater in New York is kind of a weird world mm-hmm. because it's the center of musical theater. Mm-hmm. So there aren't... It's there aren't a ton of theaters doing community theater. It's very competitive, um, and so I did a couple of shows, and I tried to kind of pursue, but it's hard to pursue being a performer. And I found that me as a person didn't want to wait tables. Like I wanted to have a steady income. I wanted to have health insurance. I wanted to be able to afford to go see shows because seeing them fed me artistically as much as doing them did. And so it just kind of petered out, and suddenly I was working. Um, doing event planning, which was a very comprehensive job in terms of the number of hours that it took up because it would be planning stuff during the day and then attending and working events at night. And so suddenly I just kind of found myself in the hamster wheel of life that I was working all the time and just not doing anything. And it just kind of fell off and it just, it left. And I was really depressed for a long time. Like I was really unhappy and I think it's because I lost this connection to any sort of art. Um, and I got, it got to be about four years ago, four and a half years ago, and I had taken an acting class at the Atlantic Theater Company. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'd gotten my stuff together to be like, I'm going to try to reconnect. And in that class, I met this really uh, nice guy. His name is Eli Newell, who I haven't spoken to since then. And in passing, he said, you know, you should really try improv. I think that you would like it. And I kind of took that away in the back of my brain and just dismissed it. And then a couple of months kind of after that, um, my friend Brandon was like, you know, I saw this improv show and I really think that you should try it because I think that you'd be good at it. And I was like, okay. So I kind of like tucked that away and was like, oh, that's so random that two people said that to me kind of non, out of nowhere, I guess is the right way. And I subsequently bought an apartment, which was a huge life thing, which was stressful and overwhelming and happened really fast and then happened really slow. Um, And about four weeks after that, I was laid off from my job and had like a complete breakdown of like, I've just committed to a 30 year mortgage and now I don't have a job. Uh, And it was two days before my birthday and I was going to Vegas for my birthday with my mom. It was such like a, a quaint depressed trip to (laughs) Las Vegas where we just sat there just being like, what is my life now? I was completely lucky. I got a new job within weeks. I mean, it was just God smiled on me, literally. Like, I don't even know how else to describe it. I started this job. I shared an office space with this woman, and she said, uh, and as we were getting to know each other, she said, oh, you know, I'm an actor uh, as well, and I take this uh, scene class every weekend, and it feeds me in a way that I need to be fed in order to be happy. And I was in the middle as, like, someone who hates change and likes to always be in control. That's me, like, to a T. Uh, I was sitting there and I, you know, had bought a, bought an apartment, lost my job, started a new job. I felt so out of control. I had auditioned for a musical to try to get my footing back in, had not gotten the part and was devastated because it was a part I was dying to play. And she said this to me and I immediately went online and there was a UCB 101 class and I just signed up for it. Like I had never been to an improv show. Um, I didn't know anything about it except like these two people had said UCB to me, you should take it it was a Friday night class 6 30 to 9 30 and I just signed up Mm -hmm. and that was uh four years ago the first class was on um September 7th 
2012. So I just celebrated my four-year anniversary. Which, Happy anniversary. Thank you. I'm very excited. Yeah. So what was your first impression like stepping into an improv class having never seen improv before? Uh, I loved it. I mean, it was just basically go make stuff up and have fun. Like, that's what it felt like. Um, uh, it was perform, which is something that I love to do. Just getting in front of a room and uh, something that with someone who has a very distinct look mm -hmm. and a voice that doesn't necessarily match how I look, which was a struggle that I've always had in terms of trying to be cast mm -hmm. in things. It was just so uh, magical. I don't, what's, I'm not sure what the right word is. Just cathartic almost to be able to play any part and mm -hmm. it didn't matter. Like I could walk out there and I could be, you know, a five-year-old boy or I could be like a 37 year old woman or I could be an 80 year old man. Like there was no, there were no rules saying you don't look the part, which is something that I'd been hearing, you know, as I was pursuing the career for so long, it was just like, Oh my God, I can do anything that I want and people believe it and people support you. And I get to have fun and laugh and create and it's in the moment. Uh, and it just felt amazing. That's interesting. That seems to be a, a pretty consistent response um, among people who I talked to who kind of took to it immediately. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the response being, oh, the first thing I noticed when I started doing it was I could do anything I want. I yeah. can play any person who I want to play. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it's just an interesting thing to notice that people who, because you've only been improvising for four years. Yeah. Um, but are, are on Harold Night. and uh, crazy. Uh, I mean, you're on top of the world, New York improv wise, <laughs> it really is kind of like the fast track of, of someone who is instantly really outstanding and knows oh. exactly what they're about, knows exactly who they are and exactly what they want. It's just interesting that that idea keeps on cropping up over and over. Whenever I might meet people who have that similar mm -hmm. vibe going, the first impression is I can play whoever I want to play. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And I think that's something that was good for me is I came to this a little bit older. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I know, you know, I started doing this in my mid thirties, so I kind of knew who I was as a person and I had a lot of experience. Like I had been performing for essentially, you know, 30 years before that. So I think that, that there are certain things that if you've never really been on stage before, that there are skills that you kind of have to learn that I had the luxury of having been on stage before I didn't have to learn those things along with trying to learn improv if that makes sense it does yeah yeah it was a real it was a real gift <laughs> people who um kind of make the have one foot in the world of more legit acting and one foot in the world of improv i hate that term but that is the mm -hmm. accepted nomenclature uh, <laughs> um will sometimes have a bit of a struggle with being able to keep their calm in an improv scene because there's a training that's about knowing what you're fighting for in a scene, mm -hmm. grabbing your objective as quickly as possible and going all the way for it. And, and there's a little bit of a focus on the bigger, more intense emotional, the climactic moments are what you're really mm -hmm. being taught to do in acting classes. Right. So sometimes people who are either making the transition from acting to improv or people who are kind of straddling both of those worlds have to learn a different vocabulary in order to not fight all the time. Mm -hmm. Was that a transition for you that was already taken care of? Were you comfortable with easing into the rhythm of, of a more kind of straight-laced comedy approach to stuff? Uh, I think yes and no. I feel like kind of, and maybe you can correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, I, I think a note that I sometimes get now, which kind of will do that is the too plotty mm -hmm. note that sometimes I will be in a scene and I'll be thinking about the production as a whole as opposed to being in the moment and finding those connections and um, not having, like, turning off that kind of eye to the big picture. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that I actually still struggle with and something that is helped or hindered, I'm not sure, by being part of the cast mm -hmm. because in the cast we are doing a play or a production with a beginning middle or end end and so that kind of feeds that need a little bit and it's it's still a struggle to kind of let go of that I mean I think that is something that I will always struggle with a little bit because I do 
love the idea of the beginning, middle, and end. And sure. sometimes that takes away from being present in a scene. And it's something that I get noted on, and it's something that I have to remind myself. And it's, um, I have the luxury of kind of doing these different styles of play. And so I think because I'm jumping to um, different styles all of the time, it's a good way to to keep myself present where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there is so many different kind of things happening well, I um, would imagine that being a handicap much more in in a Harold with something like like the cast or or premiere, mm-hmm. which is narrative. Yeah, I imagine that would be a real um, advantage to be able to look at the full story and have a sense of of shaping it. I mean, that's one yeah. thing that improvisers in general, people whose exposure to performance is is predominantly improv, mm-hmm. are, are a little bit weak at. Yeah, there's a little bit of a sense of how to get a really great pattern going on, but if you have to maintain something for a right. length of time, there's a little bit of like a shapelessness and a meandering quality to a lot of improvisers. Yeah, so I, I, I could see where having that way of having a bird's eye view on stuff can be a real advantage. Actually, in most situations, yeah, Harold's one of the few situations where it's not the <laughs> biggest yeah. thing in the world. Yeah, but I think that there's also even you know this is something that we talk about in premiere is when you are within that narrative structure, how do you keep how do you still surprise yourself in scenes? How do you not immediately tell the story that you feel like should be told? Which, of course, you're telling a story. You are telling that narrative. You are giving that arc. But how do you still play and surprise yourselves and have discoveries? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great challenge, and it's one that I love every week. You know. So here's a, an obnoxiously oversimplified question. Sure. How do you do that? Um, you practice and you listen to your coach and you stay present and you, um, you keep working on it every, every rehearsal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that that sounds basic and an oversimplification, but it is, I mean, I think it's about, and that's the great thing about improv. It's about being present. And so that's such a great challenge and a great problem to have i don't know i have to think about what i'm trying to say not very well i just Um, uh uh, taught a class where we kind of um worked on this format where you would start with a two-person scene mm -hmm. and then someone else would kind of begin narrating Mm -hmm. about that scene they would kind of start talking to the audience and explain this other relationship that one of these characters is in. So like, for example, you might be in a scene with Evan and, and I might turn to the audience and I might come on out and I might say, I'm Beth's father and I disapprove of this thing that, that she has going on with Evan. And I don't want to step on her toes. I want her to be her own person, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And I would kind of explain all of that and then turn to you and initiate a new scene for you. So wow. the way this okay. the way this format works is most of the scenes, not all of them, but most of them, when an actor casts themselves in a role, mm-hmm. they're basically telling everybody exactly who they are and exactly what their purpose is in the story. Right. And then they start playing the scene. Yeah. And what was really awesome about it was it in no way took anything out of the scenes. It, it right. did not the scenes were no less surprising or 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 lively than they would have been had all of that stuff been left as like subtext. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting lesson in, in you can have a sense of the shape of exactly what you're trying to accomplish. You know exactly the goal that you're going in for. Right. And still the way that you're getting there is filled with these fun surprises and these fun, there's like the current that, that is flowing in this particular scene is not something that you were able to plan for. The actual feel of relating to this person is not something you were able to plan for. And so even the audience watching can know exactly what is supposed to happen. They know exactly what the end of this is going to be and still be, still follow along very happily moment by moment. Yeah. And be surprised by like how, how do I as an improviser, like when I hear that scenario, it would be like, oh, great. So I'm going to, my character is going to try to list all the ways that I adore Evan. Right. And all the ways that you're going to try not to tell me why right. that's wrong. Right. And it'll be like, hopefully what will make that fun is that my vision of how I share that information with you and your reaction will be delightful and exciting it, and fun. It, and that's what was like kind of interesting about experimenting with that is um, it got me thinking a lot about 
planning in scenes or how much Mm -hmm. you begin to plan. Because I think you do sometimes worry when you're on stage that like the writer's brain starts kicking in and then you try to shut the writer's brain off or, 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 or some people are looking for the moment when the writer's brain kicks in and you know, all this kind of stuff. But it got me thinking a lot about, uh, uh, how afraid sometimes I am of pre-planning things, mm-hmm. but how useful it can actually be to have that idea and, and how it's not something to shy away from necessarily. It's something to shy away if you're imposing it on right. everybody and pushing everyone to it, but to just be very clear and announce your intentions. Once I tell you very specifically what I want and who I am uh, and what I want from you, you have all these wonderful options now in how you're going to meet me with that right. and that surprises me and yeah. and it actually makes for really lively scene work like really uh, the acting can be really good mm-hmm. which I think sometimes I think sometimes the acting in improv can be a little bit superficial and a little bit faked mm-hmm. partly because either people don't know their intentions and so they're acting without really knowing where it's coming from right or they know their intentions but don't want to be writers pushing it and so they don't t- communicate to anybody yeah. what their intentions are and so you get this kind of weird guessing game yeah this thinness. no man's land of no one wanting to push anything forward yeah and everyone's just kind of uh yeah yeah i think yeah that's interesting it's that's that class sounds terrifying and amazing and i think that something as someone who did kind of perform before something that i consider myself as not that people you categorize performers, but for me, I think of myself as a very emotional performer. Mm-hmm. Like when I, when I am in a moment in a scene where I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, I think that some people do kind of fall back on game or pattern, and some people will fall back kind of as more emotion. And that's me. Like yeah. when if I'm in a in a scene where I'm like I'm not sure what's happening, I immediately go make eye contact with my scene partner and and think like what am I feeling what's what's happening between the two of us what is the relationship mm-hmm. and that's where i can go back to find my footing to figure out where to go mm-hmm. next which doesn't really it does, that was just a thought i was having as you were saying no but it's a good things. thought he, he, um i just read this book uh improv for everyone by greg Tavares. Mm, i have not read that it's quite good um and he has this uh 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 head head heart body mm-hmm. technique in the book um, leading with your head, leading with your heart, leading with your body. Leading with your head is deciding something about yourself before you go into the scene. You know mm-hmm. something, you have a secret, you have what a point of view, whatever it is. Right. Leading with your heart is you attack the scene emotionally and figure it out as you go through. Leading with your body is exactly that. You have a shape. Your physicality suggests who you are. And he talks about how different people will predominate. Different people will mm-hmm. have their their kind of key one they hold on to. Um, And I thought that that was pretty interesting and pretty true. And the way that one will lead to another, like I think I'm definitely a head player, but my head will lead to my heart. And Mm -hmm. when I'm in those moments and scenes where, okay, now I don't know what's happening, it's about using my head to get back to my heart. Or looking at the other person and trying to trigger my heart to get reconnected back to my head. I'm rarely a body type of player. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I can see that with your, with your approach to playing too, that there's a lot of heart starting yeah. with that, a lot of committed emotion that then leads to strong head work too, of looking for how the pieces come together. Yeah. I think I would definitely kind of do that with, with the body. Would that include like object work? Is that kind of like a, someone who would go back to being physical in the scene to find I guess it could. their it, center or is it more actual physicality? Of the I think it's more actual physicality, character. physical expressiveness and, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, Shifting your spine, shifting your center of gravity to just feel like a different person. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like great stuff in that, like r- decide on an emotion and then reach out for an object. Mm-hmm. And then what you're looking for specifically is the moment where the emotion and the object connect and you suddenly, your mind is flooded with instant backstory. Right. The example he gives is you decide on sadness, you reach out, you grab a bowling ball, you start polishing the bowling ball. And as you're polishing the bowling ball, the combination of bowling ball and sadness gives you this instant backstory of a friend who just recently died of a heart attack, surprisingly. And, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, his wife gave you this bowling ball and now you're, you're, at like a benefit for like heart, like whatever it is. Yeah. Not that you're going to spit all that information out in a scene, but, but being able to kind of start with your heart, but apply it to physical details Mm -hmm. to create, to trigger the head, to give backstory ideas. 
yeah. pretty cool. You it's know. really interesting. Yeah, it's neat. It's a good book. Improv for everyone. I would recommend Improv it. Improv for everyone. Okay. Yeah. We, so this does kind of go back to, since you brought up um, kind of when you're in scenes and you don't know exactly what to do. Um, this does come back to the original question about, we, we were discussing, uh, you have a show coming up. Uh, which we might as well plug right now on uh, on August 9th. October uh, 9th. October, Jesus Christ. Sorry <laughs> about that. Oh my God. October 9th, uh, the broadcast. Yes. Um, so we were, you were showing me a picture of the poster that Carla Minardo had designed of it, which is an amazing, yes, amazing picture. Amazing picture. Mm-hmm. So we, we were talking a little bit about or, um, the way that a visual artist, someone with a really well-developed technique and a lot of skill and a lot of practice can have the ability to have an idea and then communicate that to their hand pretty succinctly. Mm -hmm. And now you have this artifact that is either close or not close to your idea, but you're able to like measure basically the success of what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm not exactly sure what my question was originally, but I was trying to kind of equate that with the experience of being a performer where, you have an idea for a scene, you have an idea for what you're about, you have an idea for your relationship, but you don't really have an artifact at the end of that to look at and say, see, we did that. Instead, it's just this process of... Of what? I mean... You have this... I mean, I think that's kind of what I love and hate. Like, that kind of encapsulates, if that's a real word. I think that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What I love and hate about the live performing arts. Mm -hmm. And as someone, you know, who did stage work and and opera and all of that stuff, and, like, improv as well, you are in the moment, you are creating this beautiful thing, and perhaps it's being filmed. I mean, that's kind of the exception. But once it's done, it's gone. And that's the amazing thing. Like, how lucky are you to be sitting in the audience when this complete moment of magic happens? Mm-hmm. Um, and your your entire self is affected. You're going back, like, your, your mind, your heart, your body. Like, you were physically affected by something magical that happens, and then it's gone, never to be repeated again. And how magic is that? And, like, with the visual arts, yeah, we will always have this poster, and it's beautiful, and it's stunning, and that's amazing. And how lucky is that? Yeah. And but there's also something really special about saying that, you know, I saw, um, you know, a, a performance happen that like only the people in that theater will ever see and will ever know, and that's something that I get to carry with me forever. Mm-hmm. And I can tr- describe it or try to relive it with someone, but it won't be the same as being in that moment when it happened. And right. that's kind of the magic, and I think what you strive for. I mean, especially with improv because you, you know, you're never going to do that scene again. Like that, that's the gift of improv is that you can go out there and have this amazing moment. And that will forever like be with you that you had that moment or it could be complete garbage and you can walk off the stage and say, thank God that moment will never be with me ever again. And like, to me, that's that the intangible versus the tangible is such an interesting, um, experience. I think that's also part of what's so frustrating about it too is, is, that in a in a perfect performance world, the expression of all these skills that you have manifests in the way that you move the people around you and are moved yourself in how you're in how you're taking in mm-hmm. what they're giving you. Um, and then you walk away from it, and instead of having a beautiful picture that you can and look at and see the accomplishment, you have that memory. And then the next time you do a show and it doesn't work, you have that memory. And there's a slightly frustrating thing as an improviser where, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, you're never quite sure if you're very good at this or not. (laughs) No, I think that's very fair. I mean, I think that's... Because I'm definitely a very Mm self-critical performer. Like, it's very hard for me to walk off of the stage and just celebrate what's happened. I'm immediately thinking about oh, you know, if I'd done this, that would have landed better. Or if this moment, like, oh, if I'd taken, you know, if I had said this instead, where would the scene have gone? Mm-hmm. Would that have been different, better? And, you know, this this is going to sound like trite, and I don't mean it in a trite way, but like something that my dad said to me that I really try to carry with me all the time is that the decision you made was the right decision because it's the decision you made. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying very actively to not look back. And it's hard because this is a craft that we're studying and we're working on and we're learning and... um it's so easy to look back and 
pick it apart and I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to just release it, you know, into the world and have it be over so that the next time I go on stage, like you don't have to drag all that stuff with you, but it's hard. Like, I'm not sure how you divorce it. Well, it like occurs to me as you're talking that like, we're like closer to the reality of parallel worlds than anybody else because Mm -hmm. the moment we make a choice, we instantly can see the four variations that would have been better or smarter or funnier or whatever it is. And so there is like that nagging thing about how, how to be decisive, how to know that the, the right choice is the choice that you're making when you instantly are like haunted by these ripples of what might've been. Yeah. Which is another like maddening aspect of being an improviser. But that's something that speaks, I think very specifically to your approach as, as a performer, which is a quality. You, you said that you like to be in control. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But you can, you're in control without being controlling, which is, I, I think the kind of the perfect place because you're so decisive and and your decisiveness makes the shows around you work so well because it's mm-hmm. so clear how to relate to you. It's so clear what you want. It's so clear what's important to you. It's so clear what you're going after. It's so clear what moves you. It's so clear how you feel um, that, that that clarity makes it really simple for everybody around you. And it tends to have shows that have a very focused sense of direction you know that the show is pointing that way and if we want to keep on moving keep on going that way Mm -hmm. wow that's very nice thank you yeah thank you uh and i think that it goes back to what you were saying before about and that's something i've been trying to learn and i think it's one of those things that you as the more experience you get the more they say like keep it simple be straightforward don't be coy yeah and it's so true just say what you mean and you'll figure it out. And yeah. so I like hearing that. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that because I think that's something that I'm definitely an over talker, which can sometimes be like a fun character quirk that mm-hmm. someone will find, but it can also be a, uh, like a nerves thing, which can overcomplicate things that don't need to be complicated. You so keep on talking until you figure out what you really yeah, mean. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I think that that's a pretty common thing. I'm going to keep on talking until I I land on it, and then mm-hmm. when I land on it, that's when I'm going to push through. It's a little bit it's a little bit scary to not have that to hold on to. Yeah, definitely. But I, I'm I'm in a similar place. It, it I'm like all about being very direct right now. Just say what the hell you mean, and get on with it. Tell yeah. the other person exactly what you're thinking, and 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 also Blake, I'm breaking the rule of you're not supposed to ask questions, but asking questions if you don't, if yeah. I don't know something and just being straightforward and yeah. saying, Oh wait, what, what do you mean? I, I think part of that is, yeah. Part of it is people are, are kind of indoctrinated not to ask questions. And mm-hmm. so, and so we tiptoe around stuff or we fake knowing stuff that we don't really know. Yeah. And, and that's no good because if, if I communicate to you that I understand what you're doing when I don't, uh, now you have a green light to continue behaving in this way that's really not communicating anything to me. Right. So I, by, by me sidestepping that I have failed you as your partner. Yeah. It's my job to communicate feedback to you and to let you know, I understand what you're doing or I, I'm still in the dark right now. But if I'm faking that and, and that kind of tip to, that, that steps a little bit on the fake it till you make it thing. But not really, because fake it till you make it means I'm sad and I'm bowling and I don't know why, but if I continue acting like I'm doing this on purpose, I'll figure it out. But in this case, faking it means you're clearly trying to tell me that you know something. I don't understand it, but I'm acting to you, the actor, as if I do. Right. And therefore, there's a failure. There's a breakdown of communication. Yeah. So so I think a lot of people are afraid of just asking, what did you mean by that? Or can you repeat that, please? Right. Or can you tell me a little more? Because it seems like bad improv. Uh, Flip side to that is I think some people are, are very afraid of saying exactly what they mean or right. expressing exactly what they want because now that I've said it now what do we do what's the next yeah. thing in the scene and that's a, that's something that I really loved about musical improv which when I finally found it was just like a hallelujah moment like all of the stars aligned and it was like oh my god I can do musical you know yeah. in improv it was the perfect world and one of the exercises that Michael Lutton um, would do is we would start a musical and the protagonist who would be the hero of our story would immediately get what they want. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Mm -hmm. And so that was such a great exercise. So like, instead of us doing a 30 minute show about how this person like wants to find the perfect deli sandwich, what happens when they find the perfect deli sandwich, you know, 
two minutes. That's such a great example. Oh, man. <laughs> um, you know, they find the sandwich. Like, what's next for that character? Yeah. Do they love the sandwich? You know, I mean, the, yeah. suddenly it's like, okay, so we've gone from A to B. So now we get to go from B to C, C to... I mean, it was such a great exercise. And I think that there is that fear. Like, you don't have to... You don't have to draw it out like you can you can find an answer and then oh my gosh have a discovery have a new discovery like what what's the next thing and like that's the joy that's the fun i i think for me even in like harold Mm -hmm. um i I think that there's the there's the pattern or game oriented approach to think about harold Mm -hmm. um but i think that there's also the approach where you don't really have to focus so much on game in your scene so much as you spend time in the early parts of a scene laying out the facts and and being clear about that and progressively coming to realize what it is you want as a character. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the Herald is, now what are you prepared to do about that? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is like a real advantage of that form because you don't have to hit the ground really hard in an opening beat. You get to take a little bit of time to to figure out what direction you're pointing in. But once you figure it out, now it becomes not holding yourself back from going for it Mm-hmm. Passionately with everything that you have, you want that yeah. sandwich. You're fighting like a like a bat out of hell to get that sandwich yeah. for two more beats. Yeah, and that you can, can learn and discover everything about that sandwich. Yeah, and, and and where I see a lot of shows go south is when you build up to the point where I want the sandwich, and then people simply stop, and then they stall for two more beats. Right. Um, because they're afraid of getting the sandwich because then it ends their want yeah which is an interesting thing it seems to be like a a great way to practice breaking through that fear of just getting what you want is Mm -hmm. a little bit of training in musical improv because you have to verbalize that and it has to be strong enough to make you need to sing to another human being about it like the emotional stakes which as an emotion, as what I, when I consider myself an emotional player, there's nothing more satisfying than having that emotional build and be like, there's nothing else I can do but sing right now. Yeah. You know, that's pretty much the peak of the mountain for me. Are there like um, specific triggers that you look for in a show? Like what, what is your radar sensitive to, 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 to get you making a choice that you feel real confident is going to be like, okay, this will be really worthwhile for me. When I'm watching a show or I'm doing a show? Doing a show. Okay, so things that I look for. Well, so I have this great luxury of being on teams with a whole bunch of crazy good people. Mm. Like the dream, and I feel like when you get to play with people who are better for you, (laughs) better than you, better for you, they're better for you and than you. Uh, Like I feel like I've been in this great situation where I'm on these teams and these people are all amazing and I am learning so much from them. I think, so like in a musical... I think that the moment, oh God, how do I answer this question? So what do I look for as a trigger to know? I think there's a moment when you kind of make eye contact with your partner and there's like this sizzle of like, we are on exactly, we have group mind, we know exactly where we are and in your head, right or wrong for improv there's nothing else that you can say Mm -hmm. and there's nothing more satisfying than in that moment knowing that you have built this with your partner and like you could say the line together Mm -hmm. because you knew like you were building it so together and that's an exciting moment that just kills me and there's also the moment of fear when frank who's our musical director just starts playing in a moment that you don't expect him to Mm -hmm. and there's this moment of he heard something what did he hear and like the excitement of figuring out like what inspired him to start music and then being able to be like, oh, I know what it is. Like the scary challenge of kind of reversing into it in a way that you might not expect. If that Does that make sense? It does. Cause it, and do you talk with Frank about that afterwards? Do you like ask Sometimes, him? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's always a very curious, because I think that particularly with musical improv, which is kind of the examples that I'm thinking of now, um, you are definitely in scenes where the music never comes. And the goal in a musical improv scene is to get to that song. So you are there and you're just, it's not happening. And I think that that's such a good moment for you to figure out like where, why, why are we not getting there? 
what's what's happening like what's not happening that Frank is inspired and he'll talk to you like afterwards it's great he's such a great resource to say you know he'll say oh the moment you said this word I knew that that was the heart of the scene and that we needed to explore that more mm-hmm. and so to have that extra set of ears there kind of in that scene with you this he's like the third silent partner or whatever number in that scene with you uh, and he's gonna he's gonna make that choice there's a little bit this is gonna be I'm gonna waste time with this with this simile, but what are you going to do? It's a little bit like, um, if your, your roommate asks you to, uh, uh, grab them, the milk in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And so you open the fridge and you look and, and, and you just can't find this milk anywhere. And then your roommate comes and there's the milk right there inside the door. And you didn't see it because you had an image in your mind of like a box container of milk. Right. And what was there instead was like a plastic cylinder of milk. And it Mm -hmm. says milk on it, nice and clear. Yeah. And you saw it, but you didn't process it because you were looking for this specific shape, right? Yeah. There's a little bit of that in scenes. And this happens in classes all the time. I, I, I would say like as a teacher, it's almost like, 65% 65% of the job of teaching is, is just being alert to this mm-hmm. where, where the performer is looking for the thing that's going to make this scene come alive and they keep on looking past the milk that's right in front of them. They've already yeah. done it. They've already said it, but you're not alert to it because you're thinking of something right. that should be bigger or should be whatever it is. Yeah. And that's where somebody like Frank is so valuable because before you realize what it was, suddenly the music is playing and you have to retroactively say, oh shit, I just gave away the most important thing about yeah. my character. And I missed it because I was looking for elsewhere. Right. So what is it in those situations where the music isn't coming and you start asking yourself, what's missing from this? What do we need to get that music happening? is it a consistent thing or is it, is it a completely new learning curve for you every time? Well, I think you're always learning in every scene because it's a different person in every scene. You're in a different scenario every time. So every scene is different. I think for me, like in those moments, I go back to the emotional connection because what's happening emotionally between the characters, like if we're talking about milk uh, and we're not finding the milk (laughs) to continue your simile. It's a great uh, simile. It's a great one. Thank you. Uh, I like it. Thanks. Um, like if we're not connecting that way, then I can take a step back and say, so what's the emotional moment that we're having? And let's go there. Like, let's like, you know, if we're just talking about milk or if we're, if we're stuck somewhere and we're not getting traction for me, that's an indicator like, okay, I need to get down to like the emotional connection here. Like what's really happening? Cause it's not about milk. Very rarely is it about milk. It's about something else. Uh, and, and that will, that emotional kind of, uh, you know, ground base or base reality, if I can connect to that, then I think that we can, we can find something there because if, if the emotion, the emotional stuff will always lead you somewhere Mm -hmm. and my, for me, that's my, my go-to. That's a good answer. All right. We're moving on to monologue hotspot. Great. Here's how that works. Okay. I'm going to give a suggestion and whatever truthful thing that suggestion inspires you'll launch into uh like a story or or an opinion real opinion okay at any point i can cut you off to launch into my own truthful honest story or whatever based on some detail of what you said and then at any point as i'm talking you can cut me off and we can keep on taking turns and it's just sort of a way to kind of scattershot follow our points of connection together okay for the next like oh five minutes or so (laughs) okay so (laughs) beth the suggestion is steel Steel. I am deeply ashamed that I once, I I stole something from Target uh, when I was in high school. And I'm so deeply ashamed and I have such regret about it. And I think part of what I'm ashamed of is that I stole a Cindy Crawford workout tape, which is just such a lame thing to steal. Like a VHS Cindy Crawford workout tape with a chair. I have never consciously stolen anything I have always, uh, uh, I never went through like a rite of passage thing. Like when the, when the other kids my age were like, 
the cliche is like smashing mailboxes, but what they used to do was drive around Staten Island and steal people's newspapers um, or go to like the drop-off point where the local paper would put like the whole stack for the neighborhood. They would steal all of those and then like throw them in the in the water or whatever. The one or two times that I was like a tag along on those things, I felt so nauseous. And I've always had this responsibility bug uh, that has prevented me from from a- anything that would mess with anybody's proprietary rights. That that makes me think of my dad, who is like the most upstanding guy that I know. He's just the best person that I know. I can talk to him about anything. Uh, and when he taught me how to drive a stick shift car, how he did that is we drove uh, in the car about two blocks away from my house, and he got out of the car, and he walked home, and he left me there, and was basically like, figure it out. You'll figure it out. You just have to figure out how to do it. Some of my warmest memories in life are driving to the um, Staten Island Mall with my mom uh, and just having heart-to-heart talks with my mom on the way to the mall because my mom kind of early on took a position with me that um, uh, you're a responsible person, you're a respectful person, um, so I'm going to treat you like, like a like an intelligent person. Mm-hmm. So like when I was going through adolescence, it was kind of an open door that like anything you want to talk about, it, you know, we will not discuss like parent to child. We'll discuss like two human beings discuss. So to this day, when I, when I think about like those special moments or those important moments that you want to like dramatize on stage, to me, those important moments are always like driving in a car with somebody. Uh, the one time that I skipped a class in college, I, I'm pretty straight straight edge. I think that's the right way to say it. Like I'm, I was always been very good. Uh, my friend and I skipped a class and we took a bus to the mall. Uh, we went to school in Rochester, New York and on the way to the mall, the bus broke down. So this time when we were going to be like skipping class and going to see a movie, we were sitting on the side of a highway on this broken down bus waiting for another bus to come. I took my brother one time when he was a kid to see the movie, A Night at the Roxbury. With uh, 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 the hell is it? Will Ferrell, Will Ferrell Chris and Chris Kattan. Kattan. Uh, not a great movie. My brother was a little kid at that point, and so I took him. We, we had to. This was at this movie theater, like by the garbage dump on Staten Island. <laughs> so we had to like transfer three buses to get to this particular movie theater. I remember it was a really cold, rainy day, and it took us like six hours to get out to this movie theater and then when we got there we were half an hour late for the movie and had to wait another hour and a half sitting outside for the next one to start and that still ranks as one of my favorite memories with me and my brother we wasted an entire day to go see night at the roxbury and then get a cheap slice of pizza at the place next door and not a very funny movie i'll tell you um i don't think i've seen the night at the roxbury but it has a pop song in it that is my favorite pop song in the whole world called what is love Mm -hmm. and it's like what is love baby don't hurt me like i can't remember i love this song and i remember so clearly when i was in high school we used to do something called cruising which is people would just get in their cars and roll down the windows, and then you just drive around. And I just remember that, like, blasting from the radio while we, like, drove around our little town and waved to other people in cars. And- I, the music that most affected me when I was a kid was whatever I would hear at the mall. And so my secret, uh, uh, like, shameful thing when I would go home and, like, do my homework and whatever, I'd put my, like, good headphones on and pop them into my boombox and then lock the door and put the boombox over to uh, 106.7 Light FM. And I would listen to like all the love songs on Light FM. And uh, <laughs> at, at night, was it uh, Delia? Yeah. Delia? Listen to Delia dish out advice to people and play uh, um, you know, their requests and whatnot. <laughs> and still, that's the music that most, when I hear, I have the, the most amount of like emotional response to is all that like real cheesy 80s, 90s love stuff. Uh, that makes me think that my really good friend Amber made me the most amazing mixtape when we were in high school. Um, and it was all of these like fun, quirky songs, including this song called Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. And I can't remember the name of the comic, but he, he did like a comic album and it had this great song and it literally was like, um, all the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. And so it was like this kind of um, comedic, they, these really comedic dark songs. And I just, like thinking back, that like that sort of kind of humor like speaks to me 
so eloquently. And I remember hearing about the guy who, who made that album. I think he was like a science professor or something and he did it for fun. And he would, he would like play it like low key bars and he would make these albums. And I just, I remember always, I, I wore that mixtape out so much cause I would always play it in my car. I would always play it in my Walkman. And it just, that music really spoke to me so much. And it, it also like wearing out tapes makes me think of, um, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was like mm-hmm. one of my first great loves and how I used to record it. It was on from 4 to 6 a.m. I think on like the Sci-Fi Channel or the Comedy Channel. Like one it was of on the Comedy two. Channel before uh, they switched over to Comedy, uh, uh, Comedy Central. Yeah. So like I remember recording it from 4 to 6 a.m. on Saturday morning. And then that night my parents and I would watch it and we would order pizza and my best friend Robin would come over and we would watch that. And I like very recently got rid of all of my VHS tapes, which I had collected over time. And I kind of, as I was sorting and going through and throwing them out and figuring out what to donate, like finding all of these old tapes with like the labels on there, like scratched out with what I had recorded. So it would be like the date and MST3K. And then it would, you know, it'd be like growing pains and Sequest DSV, which was a show that I was really into. And once again, we have come to a conclusion of another perfect rendition of monologue hotspot <laughs> because I can continue talking about this for 45 minutes. I'm, I'm <sighs> giving up my VHS collection is still one of the, I haven't, I haven't purged yet and it's stupid because they're all completely rotting away up yeah. there, but it took me so much time to amass the VHS tapes that I have. I know they're sitting in bed. My dad had gotten like a VHS changer like yeah. thing that allegedly we were going to be able to, transfer some of them from VHS not so great my dad got one too not so great but like so I did like my first round of purge which was like oh I can just get rid of these that's fine I don't need them and then it was like these are the ones I'd love to try and that was like two bags full and then he was like that's not really working come through and get rid of some more and ah man VHS oh it's it's so sad it's hard to (laughs) let go all right speaking of sad Okay. We're going to move on to our final portion of uh, our conversation today. This is called Very Serious Scene Opposite a Jar of Pickles. And here's how it goes. <laughs> we have here a jar of pickles. This will be your inanimate scene partner for the scene that you're about to do. Okay. It's a B&G New York Deli style pickle. Very good. Uh, um, and I'm going to give you a situation to play out for about two minutes with okay. this jar of pickles. And it's going to be a totally serious situation. The goal is to play the most serious scene that you can. The only rule is that when you address the jar of pickles, you address it as jar of pickles. So its name in the scene is jar of pickles. Okay. Best Slack, are you ready for a very serious <laughs> scene opposite a jar of pickles? Yes. Yes, right. I am. Thank so you. The situation is this. We're in Russia. It's uh, the turn of the century, shortly before the Russian Revolution. Uh, 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 you come from a Jewish family and, and you have been working away uh, uh, um, for years, saving a little bit of money here and there to get your family and your children out of Russia uh, to go live with your brother-in-law who lives in the New World, lives in, in New York. Okay. But your daughter, your middle daughter, has fallen in love and has run away. And she is running away to go be with a man who she loves who was recently sent to Siberia as a political criminal against the state. So he's been exiled to Siberia. So you track your daughter down. Now you have this money to go back to New York, and you found her on this, on this sad, isolated train stop in the middle of the country. It's an icy, snowy Russian winter, and you've just confronted her, her and you've just gone with the parental thing that you're going to kidnap her back. But you realize the futility of it because she's really in love. And now where the scene begins, you and your daughter, as played by this jar of pickles, are waiting for the train to come to take her to Siberia to be with the man that she loves. And you know that you will never see your daughter again. Jar of pickles. I never thought I'd have to say goodbye to you. I knew you would grow up and, and have your own home, but I always assumed it would be down the street or, or perhaps, you know, a, a, a hearty walk away. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jar of Pickles. I, I'm sorry that I, that, I, that I came to you and, and tried to force you into something you didn't want. That was never my intention, Jar of Pickles. I, I truly thought that this would not be the, the way the story ended.
jar of pickles, it's amazing how, 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 how little there is to say while waiting for a train and how much there is to say once a train has left the station, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and that is a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. Yay! <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Beth, let's plug a few things that you have coming up. Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, we just scratched the surface of it, but you have the broadcast coming up on Monday, October 9th. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is made up of uh, Devin O'Neill, Carly Minardo, and Elenis Gopetis. I might be mispronouncing her last name. I apologize. Um, and we, as the cast, did a radio drama, a radio play. And it was the four of us. And we had such a great time that we're going to do it again. So we are going to do the broadcast, a radio play, on Monday, October 10th at 9 p.m. at The Magnet. Fabulous. With um, special guests Funkle Todd are going are gonna to join us for some, uh, for some improv as well. Fabulous. Please yeah. mark that down on your calendar, folks. And then you have a show coming up at uh, Nimiff. Yes. Uh, so my musical two prov, Hansberry and Slack, we're going to be part of the musical Inspirado on Thursday, October 13th at 11 p.m. Ooh. And that is part of the New York Musical Improv Festival, which is a great place. There are tons of teams performing. So if you are a musical improv fan, you should definitely go and also come and vote for uh, Brian and I as we compete in Inspirado. Come and do it. That's October 13th, folks. Anything else uh, that you care to plug? Uh, yeah. So Foxhole is Pretty much every Tuesday at UCB Chelsea and premiere is Friday nights at 10 and the cast is Saturday nights at 1030 and I would love if uh, people would want to come and check it all out. You got ample chances, folks. Do it, my friends. Beth, it has been a delight talking. Thank you. Thank you this so has been much amazing. for being here. Hooray. Ooh. We knocked the water uh, down. Hooray. <laughs> I made it weird. <laughs> a few other thank yous, of course, of Going to, first and foremost, our producer and today's engineer, Evan Ford Barden, our executive producer here at the Magnet Theater Podcast, Mr. Ed Harpsman, and of course, a huge thank you to all of you wonderful people out there in podcast land listening to this. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a positive shout out on iTunes or whatever other platform you're downloading. What do we have? Like, What do we do? Stitcher. Stitcher. Can you comment on Stitcher? Is there like a like sure. option on that? Stars? What do they do? Find out how Stitcher operates and say something positive because it would be a nice thing to do. Uh, also, if you have suggestions for uh, Monologue Hotspot or for a very serious scene opposite of Jar Pickles, or if you just want to like give us a comment or whatever, you can find us on Twitter on Magnet Theater. That's Magnet Theater Twitter. Um, you know how it works, so you know do that thing. Thank you so much to today's guest, Beth Slack. Oh, thanks, Louis. This has been a blast. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.